Well, I hope everyone uh, was greeted this morning, and uh, we're glad you're here to worship with us this morning. Today is what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. And without question, the message of Palm Sunday is the message of the King. Indeed, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus would be a king. The Old Testament prophesied over and over again that he would be a king. For example, in Psalm 2, verse 6, God the Father spoke of Jesus in these words, and he said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses that we hear a lot around Christmas time, we read this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, those are just two of, I could give many other examples from the Old Testament that declared that Jesus was to be a king. Then you come to the New Testament and you open the book of Matthew there. And in the very first chapter, he gives us a genealogy of Jesus in order to show that Jesus was in the line of King David. And thus he had a right to reign as a king. Then you go to Matthew chapter 2, and you read there the story of the wise men who came asking the question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is this one who has been born king? They recognized that a king of the royal line of David had indeed been born. Clearly, Jesus is presented as a king. John the Baptist proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus came and announced, he said, the kingdom is at hand. Why? Well, because the king was present. The king was there. You see, the kingdom is embodied in the king. And the king was there. And he said, the kingdom is at hand. But how was King Jesus received? Was he received as a king should be received? Well, in fact, the only crown that they gave him was a crown of thorns. And the only throne that he was lifted up on was the cruel cross of Calvary. And the question we face is this. Why did they treat the king in this manner? Why? Well, the answer is because there was a great misunderstanding of the purpose and plan of King Jesus. Great misunderstanding. Nowhere was that more evident on the day that, than on the day that we are commemorating today, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we commonly call the triumphal entry. It was a day of high drama, of great enthusiasm and euphoria, but it was also a day of great confusion and misunderstanding. And this morning we were going to look in some detail at the Apostle John's account of that first Palm Sunday. Actually, of all the events in Jesus' life, this is one of the few events that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Every one of the Gospels has the story of the triumphal entry. Obviously, it was a very significant day in God's sight. Very significant day. 
And so it is important that I think that we understand the significance of the events that occurred on that day in history. And I would ask you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 12, the gospel of John chapter 12, where we have John's account of this incident. Now, if you're using one of the Bibles that uh, are provided for you there, you'll find this on page 1,279, 1,279. Follow with me as I read John's account. On the next day, the great multitude who had heard, who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb uh, and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. And I want you to notice this morning four things concerning the king that we see in this passage. First of all, I want you to notice the praise of the king. We see the praise of the king. Verses 12 and 13. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, I want you to try to envision with me this morning the scene on that first Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. I think we very often fail to grasp the real magnitude of this event. Keep in mind that this is the day after a wonderful feast at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. Many guests had been there celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. That was a great celebration. That was something to celebrate. Didn't happen happen every day. Somebody uh, raised from the dead. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And during that supper, you might recall, Mary had poured out this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And she had wiped his feet with her hair as a demonstration of love and devotion. Verse 3 tells us of that. Mary therefore took a pound of very costly, genuine spikenard ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. And so that was the day before. And as the next day dawns, 
The news of Jesus and the incredible resurrection of Lazarus had spread from the town of Bethany to Jerusalem, which was just a couple of miles away. And so Jesus leaves the town of Bethany and he approaches the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, from which Jesus could see the city of Jerusalem, it rises about a 100 feet above Jerusalem. And it gives an unforgettable view of the whole city of Jerusalem, which was to the west of the mountain. Luke 19 records that Jesus tells two of his disciples to go into a small village that was there. And he said, you'll find a colt uh, or a baby donkey tied to a post. And he tells them to bring it to him so that he can ride into the city. I'm sure that the disciples were beginning to wonder exactly what was going on. But they did as they were told. And uh, from the moment Jesus is seated on that donkey, from that moment, He becomes the visible center or focus of a great multitude of people who surrounded him on the way. It appears from the account that there were two tremendous throngs of people coming from two directions. One of them were coming, one group was coming out of the city of Jerusalem to meet him. The other was coming with him from Bethany. You'll notice in verse 12 what it says. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, some versions say the huge, the vast crowd. This is the crowd that is in the city for the great celebration. Then notice verse 17 and 18. And so the multitude who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. There was this whole crowd that was coming with him alongside of him. In fact, the crowd was so large You'll notice that the response of the Pharisees was to this whole event. In verse 19, the Pharisees said to each other, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world is going after him. Their their, uh, evaluation was the whole world is going after this Jesus. And of course, that was a great concern to the Pharisees. This was not just a matter of uh, Jesus riding on a donkey with a few hundred people along this road here. Most likely, the crowds lining the streets were in the hundreds of thousands of people. And the excitement and enthusiasm becomes all-consuming as these two large crowds flow together. Josephus, the renowned Jewish historian of that day, estimates that there were well over two million people involved in the great Passover feast in Jerusalem. And teeming thousands from all over the world were flooding into the city to observe the Passover. One writer describes it this way. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims were jammed into those narrow little streets. It was like a carnival. Shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, body to body. You couldn't walk. You couldn't squeeze through this mob of people crammed into those little narrow streets of Jerusalem. It was Passover time and the city was jammed. It was like a mob at Mardi Gras. It was jammed. And this great mass of humanity surges around Jesus, waving palm branches, it tells us. They took off their cloaks and they threw them on the path in front of him. In fact, Matthew tells us this. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So they were covering the road before Jesus with their coats and with the palms and they were waving the palm branches as he came. And they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. If you've ever been in a great crowd, you know how the mass hysteria can spread. Probably the greatest crowd that I have ever stood in 
was in the great plaza in San Jose, Costa Rica on, on Good Friday of 1967, an experience I will never forget, when hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were gathered in that great uh, plaza as on Good Friday, as they do in most Latin American countries, they would come from one end of town with a statue of Mary, and they would come with it from the other end of town with a statue of Christ passing through the streets and uh, people screaming and hollering, and then they would meet in the great plaza. The both both of the statues would meet uh, there. It was a very emotional event, great hysteria, people screaming. Uh, it, it just kind of spreads through the the, the mob. I like to picture this event as a ticker tape parade in New York City. Now, we don't see those as much as I think we used to, I guess, but and it's mostly sports teams and not great heroes, you know, people that haven't accomplished anything uh, to, to, of consequence. Used to be people like John, uh, uh, General MacArthur and General Eisenhower and people that had accomplished something. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> I won't get off on that. I like to think of it as a great ticker tape parade. Of course, they didn't have the ticker tape, which they don't have anymore in New York City. They didn't have the confetti, but they took the palm branches as their means of expressing their enthusiasm. It was an, an absolutely incredible scene of great emotion and great expectation. Because you see, the day that the nation of Israel had anticipated for centuries apparently was finally here. A day that they had looked forward to. The promises had been there and they were, it looked like the day was finally here. Because you see, they had long anticipated that a Messiah would come as a political king and would overthrow Rome, the oppressor, the great oppressor. And after all, they were there to celebrate the Passover. And what was the Passover celebration all about? It was for, uh, to celebrate the great deliverance from Egypt when they were delivered from bondage. And so it was very appropriate and fitting that apparently God had chosen on Passover time to bring deliverance again at this time of Passover from the great oppressor, Rome. And after all, they knew Jesus had the power. They had seen him do all kinds of miracles. They had seen him heal the lame. He had given sight to the blind. And then, of all things, they had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They knew that he had the power to do this. And so they shouted at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means literally, save now, save now, do it now, do it now, deliver us now. You're the king. You're the king. We acknowledge you as king. Save us now. That's what they're saying. And you'll notice in verse 13, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they were also singing uh, a portion of Psalm 118, which is what, which is called the Hallel Psalms that were always sung at Passover season as a prayer that the salvation of God might immediately be realized. And they're singing from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says this in verse 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And you see, as they applied this psalm to Jesus, they gave him the place of Messiahship as king of Israel. And they called on him to reveal his power. In fact, the Pharisees were so disturbed by what was happening 
It was bad enough that it was a threat to their own authority. And they were concerned what would happen with Rome, with all this, uh, you know, ruckus that was going on. And, and Luke tells us that the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke their disciples. Tell them to stop calling you the king. And uh, their, uh, Jesus' reply was this. Jesus said to them, I tell you that if they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. If they don't cry out, then the stones are going to cry out. Inanimate objects would be called on to testify for him because he was going to be recognized one way or the other. In other words, if the creature will not acknowledge who I am, then the creation will. All history had pointed towards this spectacular event when the Messiah Messiah presented himself to the nation. And God desired that this fact be recognized and acknowledged. Most certainly, it was only a matter of time until the trumpet would sound and the revolution would begin to throw off the yoke of Rome. The Jews, as I said, had waited centuries for this moment. It was an absolutely electrifying moment of emotion and expectation. Apparently, even the disciples and Jesus had been telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised again. But apparently, in the emotion of the moment, the disciples uh, almost uh, forget uh, what Jesus had told them. And they're beginning to believe, apparently, that he's changed his mind. Why is he doing this? One commentator put it this way. The disciples walked in the procession almost as in a dream or if dazzled by a brilliant light all around as if impelled by a necessity and carried from event to event which came upon them in a succession of but partially understood surprises. They didn't understand what was going on. In fact, you'll notice, look at verse 16. John the writer says these things his disciples did not understand. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. It wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection that it finally dawned on them uh, all the prophecies that were being fulfilled here in this passage. <clears throat> what an absolutely indescribable event that first Palm Sunday uh, was. As for a brief moment in time, King Jesus is given at least a portion of the praise that he alone deserves. But wait a moment. Wait a moment. There appears to be some misunderstanding of exactly what is occurring here. That brings us to the second matter concerning the king, and that is the prophecy of the king. You see, in the midst of this mob hysteria, Jesus is quietly making a statement, but apparently nobody is getting the message. Nobody's getting the message. Look at verse 14 and 15. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. He did not come riding on a white stallion. He did not come into the city on a chariot pulled by four white chargers like a king should come. One Bible teacher put it this way. The crowds wanted him to ride on a tall white horse, dignified in the sunlight, or on a chariot of war, glistening in its golden trim. But Jesus rode on an animal of peace, not a war. The crowd wanted him to grasp a sword in his hand and wave that sword to show what he and his followers would do to the Romans. But he had given a knowledge branch of peace. He had a knowledge branch 
of peace in his fingers. The crowd wanted him to give inflamed and impassioned oratory to inspire them into revolution. They wanted the shouts of soldiers, but they heard only the songs of children. And Jesus, Jesus didn't say a word. He just rides on the donkey down that road heading towards Jerusalem. He comes riding on a donkey as a king of peace, not as a warrior. You see, they forgot part of the prophetic statement of Zechariah. I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Zechariah. That's the second last book of the Old Testament. So if you go to Matthew and then flip back to the second book before that, you'll be at Zechariah. Malachi comes just before Malachi. I'd like you to look in your Bible at the book of Zechariah, the prophet. Now, remember this. Zechariah, the prophet, lived 500 years before the events of Palm Sunday. 500 years before. And look at this prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 9. We're in chapter 9 of Zechariah. Verse 9. See if this sounds familiar. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt. The foal of a donkey. They had overlooked the prophecy. You see, Jesus was demonstrating that his kingdom was not a political kingdom. He had not come to overthrow Rome. Indeed, that wasn't even on his mind. That that thought was not even on Jesus' mind, overthrowing the oppressor. In fact, Luke's account reveals to us what was on his mind and heart at this time. If you turn to Luke with me for a moment, look at Luke chapter 19. In Luke's account of the triumphal entry, I want you to see how he reveals to us what was on Jesus' heart and mind when all this is is happening. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. This is his description. And he says, and when he approached the city, this is approaching Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it jesus is crying saying if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace but now they have been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you surround you and hem you on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you they will not leave uh, in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation or the time of God's coming to you. You did not recognize it. In fact, it's only 40 years later that the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, just as Jesus said. And Jesus is weeping, weeping while the crowd is clamoring. Jesus is crying. The Jewish scholar Edersheim clarifies that this way. Listen, this wasn't with a quiet, still weeping as at the grave of Lazarus. This was with a loud and deep lamentation. 
When Jesus broke out into this wailing dirge of funeral-like lamentation, the voice of the multitude was hushed into silence. The ecstatic vision of the Messianic kingdom, which had inspired the souls of these pilgrim multitudes as they sang the praises of the Messianic king, had led them to the most extravagant expressions of praise, vanished before the dirge-like lamentation of Jesus, like a fog before the morning sun. They began now to recognize that their hopes and fond delusions were vain and were not shared by him whom they boldly acclaimed king he from the hill overlooking jerusalem saw the splendor of the beloved city fade in the twilight and the shadow of irreparable moral disaster deepen into darkest night he had offered himself as the king of peace sitting on the before unridden colt as zachariah had said the messiah would come they did not recognize that god had visited them John says earlier in his gospel, he came unto his own and his own what? They received him not. They did not receive him, especially the leaders of the nation of Israel were totally rejected Jesus as their king. And you see, they had missed the whole point of his kingship. They wanted a political king. But Jesus was saying his kingdom was not of this world. In fact, a little later on in John, when he stands before Pilate, you remember he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. That brings me to the purpose of the king. What was the king's purpose here? Anyhow, look at verse 17 and 18. It says, the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness for this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign they assumed that he would use his great power to bring social and political reform even in our day there are those who see jesus as someone with a social or political message to proclaim or whose primary purpose is to meet all our needs that's how many people see jesus today The false concept of Jesus that sees him as the one who gives us material blessings is proclaimed and people rush out to him. What men fail to understand is that they must come to Jesus because they love him, not because they can get something out of him. They must come because of who he is, not because he blesses them with the possessions of this earth. It was while we were living in Venezuela in the 60s and 70s, that what was called liberation theology was born in Latin America and spread throughout Latin America into the continent of Africa. And basically, liberation theology says that the primary mission of the church, of the gospel, is to liberate people from unjust political, social, and economic oppression. That is the mandate that we have, to set people free from political oppression. But they forget Jesus made clear in this very passage, he did not come to remove poverty from the world. Look at verse 8 of this chapter. He makes it clear. He said, for the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor. You'll always have economic problems in this world. You see, Jesus did not come to correct economic injustice or to overthrow Rome and set up a new kind of political system. Jesus came to touch the hearts and souls of people and to change society from the inside out, not from the outside in. And the only way to bring lasting change in any society, in any culture, is from the inside out. You have to change the hearts of men and women. 
You can't change it from outside. You see, he came to rule and reign in the hearts of men and women. And to do so, he had to deal with the root problem of mankind, which is sin. The root problem is sin. In fact, notice the very next words of Jesus recorded here by John. Look at verse 23 of this chapter of John. Jesus says in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I am going to die. In fact, he tells exactly how he's going to die. Look at verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus is saying, I am going to die on the cross of Calvary. Here was the king who had not come to conquer the Roman Empire. He had instead come come to conquer death and the grave. That is what he came to conquer. He did not come to set up a powerful political kingdom. He came to establish God's eternal kingdom that will never pass away. And the multitude did not understand that they had a far greater need than liberation from the oppressive yoke of Rome. They needed to be liberated from the bondage of sin. That is man's greatest need. Someone has said man desires to be free, but no man desires to be free on this earth so that he can move about and do as he pleases. He thinks little, if any, about being free from the bondages of this earth. He loves the earth. He wants all of it that he can get. Houses, lands, clothes, food, sex, and recreation. Man thinks little about being held in bondage by such things. He thinks little about sin and death. He thinks little about being set free from the power of this earth and its possessions so that he can live eternally. He thinks little of spiritual freedom that is not a primary concern of most of the people in this world today spiritual freedom the key that they missed was you cannot have jesus as a king without first having him as a lamb he was the lamb of god on his way to the slaughter that would take place only a few days later when the same crowd of people would holler crucify him crucify him when they realized he wasn't going to fulfill their expectations Because you see, the Old Testament had prophesied there would be one who would come and reign on David's throne. But there would also be one who would come and be led like a lamb to the slaughter. It is unlikely that anybody expected the Messiah King and the suffering lamb would be the same person. They didn't understand that. And yet Jesus was both the king and the sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed to save his people. Jesus is seen as the lamb king especially when you get to the book of Revelation. Let me read for you just a portion. Revelation 5, listen to this. I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. They worshiping, they are worshiping the Lamb King. This was the Lamb King riding on that donkey. On that first Palm Sunday, the multitude was greatly mistaken about the purposes of King Jesus. As today, many people are mistaken about Jesus' purposes. He did not come to set up a throne in Jerusalem, but to instead to hang on a cross outside the city as the Lamb King who takes away the sin of the world. 
And that brings me finally to what I'm calling the prospect of the king. The prospect of the king. You know what? The multitudes did not know that first Palm Sunday. We now can understand from Scripture. They didn't know this. The fact is that a great day is coming when this same Jesus will return to this earth for the purpose of ruling and reigning from the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years in what we refer to as the great millennial kingdom. Jesus is going to come and reign from the city of Jerusalem. In fact, Zechariah, the same prophet who had specifically foretold Palm Sunday entrance, also foresaw a triumphal entry that is yet to take place in history. If you turn back to Zechariah with me for a moment and look at the other prophecy that he gave concerning Jesus. This one is still to take place. And listen, my friend, just as sure as it took place on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, exactly like the prophet said, it will take place someday in the future exactly like the prophet Zechariah said it would. Don't, don't have any doubt that it is going to happen. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. Notice what he says, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the woman ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand where? On the Mount of Olives, exactly where Jesus was on that Palm Sunday. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is, in, uh, which is in front of Jerusalem and on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. My friend, that will be the mother of all earthquakes. The greatest earthquake the world has ever experienced is yet to happen. On the day that Jesus' feet stand on the Mount of Olives, it says the mountain is going to split in two. And Jesus uh, will come. On that first Palm Sunday, they wanted a political king. But Jesus, the king, had come to die as the Lamb King to take away the sin of the world. But listen, when he comes to Jerusalem this time, it won't be on a donkey. He will come riding on a white horse to reign. The first entrance was in great humility. The second will be in great power and great glory when Jesus comes. It's described for us, if you turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we have a description of that coming day when Jesus returns. You know, after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples in Acts chapter 1, it tells us they said to him, Jesus... Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to do it now? You didn't do it on Palm Sunday. Are you going to do it now? They were still looking for that kingdom. And the Jews are still looking for that kingdom. Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. That's not for you. That's not for you to worry about. I'll take care of that. I have another job for you to do. Go and preach the gospel, he said. But look at this description of this coming day in Revelation chapter 19, uh, beginning at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. 
and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords from Jerusalem. And all, all who have trusted him as Savior and Lord will reign with him. Look at chapter 20, verse 6. It tells us that. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All those who have confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord will be there to reign with him for that thousand-year reign of Christ. But in the meantime, in the meantime, Jesus wants to rule and reign in your life and my life today. He wants to set up his kingdom in your heart. The Bible says God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name given to Jesus, which is Lord, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord, sovereign, king. Every tongue should confess that. And someday every tongue will. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, sovereign, king, if you confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friend, I ask you this morning, have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and come into his kingdom? Have you bowed to his gracious rule in your life? Let me ask you, my friend. Are you living in daily submission to him? Can you say that he is seated on the throne of your heart? Because, you know, every one of us have a throne in our heart. And either we are seated on that throne, that's the way we're born, or he's seated on that throne. You can't have two. Jesus said you can't serve two. You have one or the other. Is Jesus Christ seated on the throne of your life today? Will he come on that day when he comes? Will he come as your king or will he come as your judge? When he comes, will you bow before him in praise and worship and adoration? Or will you bow before him in shame and sorrow? When Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. You never bowed the knee to me. You might have been religious. You might have gone to church, but you never bowed the knee to me. If you confess him now as Lord and Savior, you will be part of that great multitude that will shout, All hail King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords on that coming day. But we don't need to wait till that day in the future. Indeed, we are here this morning to worship him as King of kings and Lord of lords.